me invite you to open up your Bible with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, the New Testament book of, of Matthew. We're in Matthew uh, chapter 5 today, and, and you uh, may have already noticed that we have opportunity today to uh, participate in communion or the Lord's Supper later in our our gathering together. And so because that is the case on the first Sunday, we don't, we don't have a children's worship time. We certainly have uh, care for, for preschoolers down the preschool hall during the service. But for elementary kids, we invite you to stay uh, during this time and to uh, to pay attention to this, uh, sport, this important time of remembering and reflecting on the greatest news uh, ever told, the greatest story ever written, uh, and that's the provision of uh, of, of Jesus for us. And so to help you with that, perhaps uh, kiddos, uh, elementary kids, first through fifth graders, or any younger than that, perhaps that are with us uh, this morning, I, I tell you what, if, you'll, if, if you will do your best to take uh, some notes during our message time over the next few minutes, uh, if you'll fill in that, that sermon outline guide there that you can find in the bulletin, I've got a little treat for you at the conclusion of our service. So if you'll do your best, you can lean on mom, dad, or brother, sister for that, uh, and come show me that after our service, then um, then I'll thank you for it. But we're in Matthew chapter 5 today, uh, coming to verse 17, verses 17 through 20 uh, in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And so as you find your place there in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 5, let me invite you. Uh, to join me standing for the reading of, of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17, 18, 19, and 20. Uh, Jesus said this. He said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law... You will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Would you pray with me? Father, we turn to you and we ask you to lead us now, to instruct us now, to speak to us now. By your spirit's presence, to the reading, to the proclamation, the application of your word for the glory of your name. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, was shortly after returning home yesterday morning from a, a riveting game of, uh, of, of flag football. Um, I, I, I turned some football on the television and I overheard a conversation taking place. There was a little uh, reenacting going on in the living room. Not a real football, but a little ball that was being thrown around by a couple of boys. And I heard an older brother say to uh, a younger brother, hey, hey, Eli, if you catch this, you'll go down in world history. I thought to myself, if only it was that easy, right? We're, we're all striving to do something, to make a name for ourselves, to live a life that counts. If only it was as simple as catching a ball and going down in world history. You see, there's some 7.9 billion people living in the world today, on planet Earth today. 7.9 billion. And of those 7.9 billion, very, very few of them 
are remembered beyond a generation or two in their immediate community. Still less are known for their impact beyond their locale. And very, very few indeed leave a legacy that goes down in history books and classrooms for making an impact upon their nation or even the world. But there's one man who even though he lived in a relatively obscure place, spending his days with a band of nobodies, leaves a legacy that surpasses all others in human history because he is the focal point of human history. Jesus of Nazareth, of course, is his name. And in less time than it takes a typical college student to complete university courses, he forever altered history. In fact, Jesus says that he came in accordance with God's will and in fulfillment of of God's word. He says that he came to fulfill God's word. Now, Bible scholars debate exactly what Jesus meant by this. What did it mean that Jesus fulfilled uh, the law? Some say uh, that it's his perfect obedience. And he came to fulfill the law and in the, in, in the fact that he was the only one to, to obey the law fully, to, to never, ever sin. Others say that it was in his teaching. And the way that he faithfully interpreted and proclaimed and explained the law. And while both of these things are certainly true, I don't think we can understand Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter 5 apart from his pending death on the cross in place of sinners in fulfillment of God's plan. Our Savior's words here suggest a certain kind of continuity with the Old Testament that implies Jesus' coming can only be understood in light of the scriptures that preceded him. In other words, we don't get Jesus in isolation. Jesus didn't arrive on the scene to abolish what God had already established or to execute a different plan or to be the basis of a new religion, but to fulfill what God had already promised and planned. In essence, Jesus is saying the Old Testament and what I'm saying are not on a collision course, but are in harmony with one another. He's saying, I I came to fulfill what the law foreshadowed and what the prophets foretold and what God had planned before the foundation of the whole world. Church, that's a big claim. That's a really big claim. Claim, but that's the claim that Jesus is making here. This is why Jesus came. More specifically, Jesus came to save sinners by canceling the law's claims on all who put their faith in him. He came to save sinners by canceling the law's claims on all who put their faith in him. What claims might the law have on us? What claims might God's law have on on us. Well, the law of God reveals our sin. And the, the law reveals that we are lawbreakers, that we've not lived up to it, that we haven't kept it. And because we're lawbreakers, to be judged on the basis of our obedience to the law means condemnation for all of us. It means guilt. Means guilt before God, the lawgiver. Guilt before the highest and greatest authority, which is a pretty big deal. Paul the Apostle would say it this way in Galatians chapter 3. He would say, for all who rely 
on the works of the law are under a curse. It's another way of saying, for all who, who rely on their obedience, their good works, are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. In other words, if you're going to rely on your obedience, you, you better obey to the end. You, you better obey fully. You better obey every command that's given. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. In other words, there's no justification, there's no declaration of righteousness, there's no declaration of right standing before God, except on the basis of faith in the one who has now come to cancel the law's claims on us. Jesus isn't canceling God's law, just its claims over us, just its condemnation of us. No, Jesus endorsed the authority of the Old Testament. That's what's going on here. Jesus is endorsing the authority of the scriptures that went before him. He didn't come to do away with it, but to fulfill it. Can't believe I'm bringing this up today, but in a big football game uh, yesterday afternoon between the Arkansas Razorbacks and the Alabama Crimson Tide, there was uh, uh, an illegal play that was called against my team, against the Razorbacks. There was an illegal formation that was called at the beginning of a play because there were too many players in the backfield. Now, when Jesus comes onto the scene, he's, he's saying that the formation and the foundation, the beginning point for knowing him is faith in the God of the scriptures that preceded his birth, his arrival, his teaching, his ministry, his death, his resurrection on the cross. Faith in the God that went before. The law and the prophets, you see, is Jesus' way here of referring to the whole Old Testament. All of the scriptures that preceded his earthly life. And Jesus says he didn't come to replace or to oppose them, but to fulfill them. Precisely. To be the person to which they pointed, the one of whom they spoke. In other words, the Old Testament is the foundation of the New Testament, not meant to be forgotten and neglected upon the arrival of the new. Church, this is why we study both. This is why we recently studied through Nehemiah. Now we're in the Sermon on the Mount. This is why in Sunday school gatherings, you, you spend time in the new and the old. This is, we want to be biblical Believers, biblical Christians, we want to know the word. We, we want to know the story. Jesus says, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus says not a single jot or tittle of the text shall pass away, meaning not the smallest letter in the original writing or language of the Bible, not the smallest letter shall be erased, not even the smallest piece of a letter shall be removed before the proper time. His point, the words of Charles Quarles, is that the authority and relevance of the Old Testament would not wane until God fulfilled every promise and prediction in its pages. You see, the people are watching Jesus at this point. They're drawn to Jesus. 
They're evaluating Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders particularly, are watching Jesus. They're listening to this radical fellow, seeing what he's going to say about Moses, about the prophets. For every teacher truly sent from God knows the greatness of Moses. And yet here's one greater than Moses, upholding the authority of of the Old Testament, but saying that he's now come to fulfill it. Jesus fulfills it. Specifically, Jesus fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. Jesus fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. And there's a bunch of them going all the way back to the very beginning, going all the way back to the Bible's first pages when the first people, when Adam and Eve listened to the evil one instead of the Lord inviting sin into the human race, and yet God plans and promises an offspring from the woman who will crush the head of the evil one one day. So in the wake of the fall, God says to the serpent, God says to the evil one, he says to Satan, he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This prophecy, church, is fulfilled in Jesus at the cross. At the cross where Satan temporarily succeeded in opposing Jesus and yet was defeated by Jesus upon his triumphant resurrection from the dead. Generations later, God calls a man. Generations after the Adam and Eve incident, God calls a man named Abram to trust him and to set out on a journey so that one day, so that one day Abraham's descendants can settle in a promised land, can enjoy a special relationship with the only God, and later welcome the Messiah sent from God so that one future day people from every nation, tribe, people, and language can gather in the presence of God. You see, God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, He said, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Years later, Years later, God calls Abraham to be willing to, to offer his, his beloved son Isaac, his long-awaited offspring. Calls Abraham to offer up Isaac on Mount Moriah as a sacrifice. And of course, you, you know the story. God won't allow this to take place. He doesn't really want Isaac to be sacrificed. He's testing Abraham. But in the context of that particular story, in Genesis chapter 22, God says to Abraham, And through your offspring... All nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Blessed when Abraham's offspring, not Isaac, but Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, really is offered as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. This prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. And Matthew goes on and on and on, going Great links to connect the dots, detailing prophecy after prophecy concerning the Messiah that is now fulfilled in Jesus the Christ. Matthew carefully notes 
that as God predicted, Jesus was indeed born of a virgin, that he was born in the town of Bethlehem, that he was called out of Egypt, that he was called to Galilee, that he was one who gave sight to the blind, caused the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, the dead to be raised, and proclaimed good news to the poor. And this is only the beginning. In fact, the verb for fulfill is used some 16 times in Matthew's gospel, and 12 of them very clearly refer to the fulfillment of prophecies. Matthew connects Jesus, the Messiah, to the prophecies of Isaiah and Micah and Hosea, Jeremiah, Zechariah, as well as the Psalms. So, so why did Jesus come? Jesus came to fulfill prophecies concerning the Messiah and Jesus forever satisfied the demands of God's law for all who believe in him. Forever satisfied the demands of God's law for all who believe in him. And this way he fulfills both the law and the prophets. The prophets predicted his coming. The law details God's commands. And the law reveals that because we've not met God's commands, we, we deserve death. In other words, laws tell us how to live, but also what the consequences will be if we don't live that way. But in God's mercy, and he's indeed a God of mercy, he's a God of justice and mercy. In God's mercy, he provided the means to satisfy justice. While at the very same time remaining in relationship with sinners, the the means was a system of sacrifice. A system of sacrifice. Think about this in the words of James Boyce. When the law was given, the lamb also was given. When the law was given, the lamb also was given. And when Moses was chosen to be the lawgiver, Aaron was also chosen to be the high priest. In ancient Israel, the law and the sacrifices went hand in hand. God had arranged it that way so that when a man sinned before the law, as all men did constantly, he had a means of atonement by which his guilt was canceled. The innocent sacrifice pointed forward to the full and perfect sacrifice of Christ. And so, church, in this way, the sacrifices were signposts pointing to the Savior. The sacrifices were were signposts pointing to the Savior who was to come. They weren't ends in and of themselves, but a temporary arrangement and repetitive practice meant to teach over many generations that sin meant death. I had a dog growing up. Anybody have a dog? Quite a few folks. I had a dog growing up, and I, I remember as a kid that dog's favorite time of the day was eating time. I Hershey, the chocolate lab, loved to eat. He loved to eat every day. And so he, he knew that Dad fed him most of the time, and so he would wait eagerly, anticipating Dad's return home from work in the evening. And as soon as he saw that truck pull in the driveway and then come into the garage, he began doing his little dance, waiting for dinner. He could not wait. 
waiting, associating that time again and again and again with it's, it's time to eat. He began to learn that this was time to eat. And to the point that Hershey, and I don't know if all dogs do this, but Hershey certainly, he began to salivate and drool. Like he, he can't even smell the food, he can't see the food, but he knows it's coming. And so he's preparing for dinner. Repetition again and again and again triggered this particular response in him. And in a similar way throughout Israel's history, a system of sacrifices, the repetitive nature of sacrifices being made for the sins of the people was meant to teach them over much time, after uh, over many sacrifices again and again and again, that sin leads to death. That sin means death. Sin leads to death. Either the death of the sinner or the death of an innocent substitute. In this way, it was meant to teach them such again and again and again over many generations, over the long haul, that this temporary system of human priests and animal sacrifices served like a seasonal tutor, a short-term answer to a long-term problem, but one that could never fully fix the problem. And the author of Hebrews would reflect on this, comment on this, instruct us on this. In Hebrews chapter, chapter 10 saying the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And for this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, what they have not have stopped being offered for the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible, the scriptures say, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So unlike the temporary solution of animal substitutes, of animal sacrifices shedding their blood for us, the scriptures declare now that Jesus is the permanent Savior. He's the permanent Savior who came not to abolish the law but to fulfill it by becoming the permanent reality to which it it pointed. He came as the priest or mediator, fully God and fully man. He came as a priest and as the sacrifice. He is God, the one through whom all things were made. The one who sustains all things by his powerful word. And he is man, tempted just as we are, the Bible says, and yet without any sin. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The permanent Savior because he is the pure sacrifice. He's the permanent Savior because he is the pure sacrifice. Human like us, but innocent, unlike us. No wrong in him, just right. No disobedience, only obedience. No wickedness, just righteousness. No lust, no pride, no greed. Always loving the Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And always loving his neighbor as himself. And all of this, all of this, for our good. For our good. Isaiah chapter 53, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Perhaps the single greatest prophecy of the Old Testament concerning the mission of Jesus. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our 
transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, Jesus is the permanent Savior because he is the pure sacrifice. The author of Hebrews would say it this way, for by one sacrifice... By one sacrifice, the sacrifice of, of Jesus the Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. By one sacrifice, He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Those who are being conformed more and more to the image of Him. Jesus is the permanent Savior because He is the pure sacrifice making us perfect forever. Making us perfect forever. You see, this is why He came. This is why Jesus came to satisfy the demands of God's law for every sinner who will just believe in him. Just believe. And not simply believe that he existed, that he was a man who walked the earth. Everybody with any sense at all that's ever studied history believes that. No, really believe that he is the focal point of human history. That he is the fulfillment of God's word. The Messiah sent from heaven who came to save sinners by canceling the law's claims on all who put their faith in him. He came to cancel the law's claims on you. Friend, he came to be your personal savior and Lord is your faith in him. Are you trusting in him? Are you following him? Are you looking to him and living for him and waiting on him? You see, to believe these things about Jesus, about his coming, is also to believe that he's coming again. Jesus is coming again. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. This is why he came came to be the all-sufficient sacrifice. He was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many for all those who turned to him in faith. And he will appear a second time. He's coming again. He's going to appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting on him. Friend, are you waiting on him? Are you waiting on Christ to come again because your faith is in him because you have turned to him this morning we have the opportunity in just a moment to participate in communion an act of obedience to our Lord's instruction to remember that Christ has come to remember that Christ has come to bear our sin Once and for all on the cross of Calvary, we take and we eat and we drink and we remember as recipients of God's grace. We remember with faith, reminded through this act of our need for a Savior, a substitute, a reminder of our need for Jesus, an act of worshiping Him, expressing faith in Him. And also the Bible teaches an act of anticipating His return, of awaiting our Savior's return of looking for and longing for the day that the Lamb will come again 
and consummate his eternal kingdom and take all of his people into his presence to enjoy the forever home, knowing him right with him. And so this morning, if you're a believer, we, we encourage you, strongly encourage you to participate in communion as an act of obedience, as an act of remembering, as an act of reflecting and worshiping Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. But if not, if you're not a believer, if you're not sure what you believe about Jesus, if your faith is not in Him or not yet in Him, then I would encourage you during this time, simply spend some time reflecting on the truths of this gospel. Spend some time in prayer to God, asking the Lord to show you and to guide you. Perhaps you sense the Lord has already led you. Turn even now and put your faith in Him. The Bible declares that all who confess Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead will be saved. So turn to him and be saved today. Bow and lead us in prayer, a prayer of confession, a prayer of preparation to come to the table as we prepare to receive the elements. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we turn to you. We turn to you, giving you thanks. Lord, we turn to you, asking you to instruct us, asking you to guide us, asking you to to continue to remind us of your provision and faithfulness in Jesus Christ, the one who came to fulfill your word for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. And Father, we thank you for salvation in Christ. And so, Lord, as we continue to to worship you together this morning. We pray that you would fix our eyes and our hearts on Jesus. Lord, that you would lead us to remember and to reflect and to worship Jesus Christ, your Son, who is our Savior. Lord, forgive us where we fail you. Forgive us where we go our own way. Forgive us where we neglect you. Lord, lead us to know and follow you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.